Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Professor Mac P. Holt, Professor Emeritus of History at George Mason University in Virginia, to talk about his book, The Politics of Wine in Early Modern France, Religion and Popular Culture in Burgundy, 1477 to 1630, out in 2018 with Cambridge University Press. Hello, Mac, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, glad to be here. Thank you so much. How are you? How's Virginia today? Virginia is sunny and it's going to be warm. Uh, uh, Highs in the upper 70s. Oh, that sounds nice. (laughs) I will see, we will see those in Northern Europe in, I would say, June or July. We will have our upper 70s. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad you're having a good day. Um, it's a nice day for a chat. So great. Well, I agree. All right. <laughs> so I'm looking over your CV, this very long, very full CV representing a lifetime of good work. And I see a few uniting threads. So you've got some of your monographs, uh, the Duke of Anjou and political struggle during the wars of religion and the French wars of religion. Tell part of the story. And then you have these edited volumes such as aristocracies and urban elites in early modern France, adaptations of Calvinism and Reformation Europe. And um, I just love this title, Alcohol, A Social and Cultural History. And this tells another part of the story. And then I see you've got uh, myriad articles. So I see this longstanding interest in the interaction of politics and religion and what we would call cross-class and cross-cultural interaction, and then this thing with alcohol that seems to be a part of a, a broader interest in livid, in lived quotidian culture. Um, it, you know, it's like material culture. So is that a fair summation of your interests? Yes, I think it is. Although uh, some of these interests have emerged over the course of studying other things. I only got interested in wine and alcohol after starting doing research in Dijon in Burgundy. Uh, I had a a fairly traditional doctoral dissertation, primarily political history, although being a graduate student in the late 1970s, early 1980s, I got plenty of exposure to social history and was only emerging than cultural history. So I want, I decided when I finished my dissertation, my next project was going to be something completely different. Uh, and I wanted to get out of Paris into the provinces to do research. And I asked a lot of people where I should go. Uh, where are the archives that are the most abundant for the 16th century? And several people steered me to Burgundy. And what a wonderful choice it was. And uh, when I started my first time in the archives there in 1986, um, I was didn't really have a 
a focus or a research question. I was just reading reading documents uh, of uh, people's lives uh, that didn't live at court and weren't members of the royal family. And this was very interesting to me. And I came across a question early on, why was the city of Dijon and Burgundy as a, a region so hostile to the Reformation? And the deeper I dug, I discovered, well, it was the workers in the wine industry that were, uh, as well as some of the clergy and politicians uh, that were behind this. And as I got more and more into the archives, um, I began to see, I need to know more about these vineyard workers, what their lives are like, what they do. So uh, that's how that started. And um, I was stunned when I was approached by Berg Press to edit that volume, Alcohol, of Social and Cultural History. I think I'd published maybe one or two articles at that point uh, and was by no means an expert even on wine in the 16th century. Um, but it got me into uh, an area of research and other questions that proved to be both beneficial and, and very interesting. Um, and so politics, religion, wine, they just all got mixed in together. And it um, occurred to me, I can't really write just about politics or religion or wine if I'm going to do a social and cultural history of this. I need to integrate them. And despite the title of the book, which was not my choice, but that of the marketing department at Cambridge University Press. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't want to write a book just on the politics of wine or the religion of wine or just wine as a, uh, an important industry in the local economy. I wanted to see how the connections of all three of those were entangled. And uh, it took me a long time. I ended up writing other books, editing other books in the meantime. Uh, when you're untenured, it's hard to say no when people offer you a contract to do things. <laughs> uh, and so I accepted these, which slowed down my progress. But um, the book that eventually emerged was much better for having taken so long, not least because a lot of other great work came out by other scholars in the meantime. Uh, and not just in French history or the history of wine, a lot of stuff in early modern European social and cultural history uh, just um, really helped me shape the questions and figure out how to answer them based on what I found in the archives. Mm-hmm. So that's a long answer to your question. That was a wonderful answer. Um, so this book seems to just kind of, uh, it seems to have been kind of the culmination or not culmination makes it seem like kind of an end, but just this step along the way, found all these questions, started thinking about them, started thinking about wine. I mean, is, is, is there, um, it seems like it must just be natural to write about wine production if you're going to do Burgundy. Well, there are a lot of books on early modern Burgundy that don't even mention it. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, and I think there are a lot of books that fo- that are more interested in politics, political power, 
um, relations between crown and city, crown, crown and province. Um, a lot of books that focus on institutions like the Parliament of Dijon or books on the, the provincial estates of Burgundy. Um, so, uh, and there are a lot of books on wine in Burgundy, but there are not a lot of books that mix wine politics and religion, uh, even in this period when it seems so obvious that um, you might do that if you are interested in uh, the subject. So I see these personal interests. Um, is there uh, was there a, a particular hole in the historiography you saw as well? Um, um, there was a particular hole in my knowledge and understanding of early modern Europe mm-hmm. and the early modern world. Um, you know, I was shaped much more than I realized uh, when I got out of graduate school. I was shaped by some of the books I read and some of the things I read immediately coming out of graduate school. Um, and um, I, being an early modern French historian, I was very strongly uh, influenced by Natalie Davis and um, everything she wrote. Uh, but I was also shaped by uh, other scholars and other approaches. I mean, the uh, someone you will know whose work you will know well, Carlo Ginsberg, from your own research. Um, mm-hmm. I was astounded when I read um, Il Formaggio e Vermi, The Cheese and the Water, mm-hmm. and I Berandante. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen anything like that. Uh, and yeah. I suppose Ginsberg was the first historian I read who first pointed to uh, what he called and at least in the English translation, the circularity between high culture and low culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I began to see, well, this is what other cultural historians like Natalie Davis are doing as well. She did it rather than talk about her methodology as explicitly as Ginsburg. Um, but it not only shaped my research, shaped my teaching. I mean, I've been, you know, taught the Reformation for 35 years to undergraduates and grad students. Uh, and, you know, books like The Cheese and the Worms or John Bossy's Christianity in the West, Natalie Davis's Society and Culture in Early Modern France, were sort of staples every time I, I taught it. Mm-hmm. And um, this, this, this made doing research a whole lot easier. Um, but, uh, yeah, I stumbled into questions, stumbled into answers and had help from reading the work of others, uh, on subjects that I knew very little about. Um, I mean, I, I knew lots about political institutions. I got to know a lot about local institutions and local history. And some of my friends in Dijon now say, I know more about the city of Dijon in the 16th century, <laughs> most resident of Dijon. Um, and I see streets named after people in, uh, you know, the Renaissance, uh, early modern period. And I recognize and know who they are. They have no idea who they are. Um, sure. You know about their families. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, I, 
I didn't set out to become a social slash cultural historian, but realized that kind of history really interested me. I'd never done it before. I really loved working in the provinces, so different from working mm-hmm. in Paris. And I don't know about you, whether you were all, whether you were in small archives, big towns, whatever. Um, they're just so much friendlier and happy to see you. <laughs> they're especially happy that you're not in there to look up the genealogy of your family. <laughs> Yeah, I'm familiar with that. I mean, I'm I largely work in Venice, but um, you know, I've gone out to these little archives, and they're like, you might as well be from Mars. They're so excited to see you. Mm-hmm. Everything they have is for you. Yeah, it's really nice. I, you know, this is as good a time as any to just kind of lay out the idea of the acculturation thesis, and and kind of the one of one of the ongoing debates when we talk about early modern Europe and the culture of early modern Europe. Uh, probably since, you know, Carlo Ginsberg, Natalie Davis, these people started talking about it. Um, Piero Camporese, and I'm, I'm painting with a really broad brush here, but the idea that there's an interaction between like the masses and the elites, and basically that this is an ongoing struggle. These these are groups who live in continuously uh, uh, continuous opposition. Um, and you you mentioned the idea of uh, the struggle Lent and Carnival. Right, the, the, the elites and the populars, legal culture, oral traditions, written culture, and you askew this framework and, uh, and 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 talk about it directly. So I would like you to comment on that right now, if you could, if you could tell me what what is uh, what do you suggest instead? Well, really based entirely on what I was seeing in the documents in the archives, um, I discovered that. Yes, there are plenty of occasions, plenty of events when the elites and the popular classes are um, basically moving in completely opposite directions. And there, there is a lot of tension. Um, and you mentioned the acculturation thesis. I mean, uh, chronologically over time, uh, the argument is that that the culture of the upper classes eventually suppressed popular culture and instilled their values of religion and uh, politics, et cetera, onto them. But um, there seemed to me to be much more interaction, much more impact working in both directions. And what I especially discovered, a lot of times they, they were very harmonious. They worked together. Um, they discovered each offered benefits to them that they couldn't get just on their own. Uh, and that's what I wanted to write about. Um, I didn't, um, I mean, this was a, another aspect of this imposed title on my book by marketers that I, I was not real happy, not just with the politics of wine, but with the term popular culture. I wanted to focus on the culture that doesn't really have a good tag or name that embodied both elites and the popular classes working, mingling, interacting, shaping together um, uh, the world that they lived in. And um, 
it's so much easier to use phrases like elite culture, popular culture, high culture, low culture, because um, people generally have a sense uh, of what you might mean by those terms. But I didn't want to focus on what was exclusive to high culture and what was exclusive to the popular classes. I wanted to focus on what they shared in common. And religion was clearly something they shared in common. They went to the same parish church. They uh, attended Mass together on Easter Sunday uh, and received communion. They um, attended religious processions in the street together. I mean, they, they lived next door to each other. There weren't the, th- there were some wealthier neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods, but each parish was really a mix in virtually every street. Uh, you have very wealthy people living side by side with very poor people. Um, their world that they experienced wasn't one of just elite culture or just the popular classes. Uh, and that's what I was trying to capture in the book. Sure. And that I, I that has something to do with the way we access our sources too, I think, and what we what we tend to think about like, you know, opera. <laughs> And what that who that speaks to as opposed to carnival plays or something, but in fact everybody's seeing them, right? That's that's what's out there. Um, and getting at the kind of sources that allow you to see how people are interacting together with one another is really is hard. There just isn't a lot of things. You know, we don't have letters. We don't have you know, like the equivalent of a Facebook post where someone with a PhD is talking to someone who's like, yeah, but you know my uncle Kevin says, like, we just don't, we don't have those kinds of things for our period. Um, and I, I think that contributes to the difficulty of speaking to this, but let's like, so let's talk about your sources. Um, so you have a lot of, uh, even an amazing bibliography an exhaustive bibliography for secondary literature listeners. If you are looking for this, I ha- I highly recommend this bib. Well, we see a lot of, uh, you have a lot of archival material and a lot of published primary sources. Could you, uh, what, did, what did you use that you really enjoyed and you found really useful? Well, I, I like working in archives. Uh, and I've been called an archive rat. Uh, and there's some historians who don't like working in archives. In fact, some who've never set foot in one. Um, and... If you're working in the early modern period, that's hard to do. But there are some. Uh, my good friends in France, Denis Cruzet, has never worked in an archive. He only works on printed sources. Um, but one of the reasons I became a historian of early modern France was to get to go to France and spend <laughs> time there and do research. Um, yeah, you have to learn the language. You have to learn how to read the handwriting. Um, But the rest of it is pretty easy to spend time in nice places with interesting people. Um, So I was attracted to the archives. But I suppose the kind of source that I had never used before and uh, didn't really expect that I would be using were literary sources. Um, The book. Um, when I got interested in the wine industry and in the the workers, uh, the the workers in French, they're called vignerons. And that's the term I use in the book because 
there isn't a good English translation. You can call them, uh, I suppose, vine dressers, um, vineyard workers, but that they both work in the vineyard and then they make the wine after the harvest. So they're experts in viticulture and viniculture, the growing of the, the, the grapes and the production of wine. So the vineyard, when, when I got really interested in trying to find out how did they live, I discovered some poetry that people wrote about them in um, the late 16th, early 17th century. And uh, that was um, and this poem called Le Bon Vigneron, The Good Vigneron, um, uh, shed light on things I would never even have thought of about how they lived, about how uh, many of them didn't allow their wives to drink wine. Their wives could only drink water. Um, and then I started asking around, that can't be true. And people kept nodding, yeah, in fact, um, in some places, it's still true. Uh, oh my God. And I discovered these um, plays that were actually written by um, well-known elites, judges in the parliament, the local parliament, um, plays that were performed in the street in the late 16th, early 17th century uh, that had vignerons as subjects in the play. And uh, these plays uh, were actually written in and performed in the regular French of the 16th century, but also the local dialect, uh, which isn't like French at all. Uh, and uh, the vigneron would be speaking in the local dialect. Uh, all the elites in the plays were speaking in French. And um, I was stunned by this. And surprised to discover that they were very popular. And uh, all the local vigneron living in Dijon would come out to watch these plays. And I thought, well, here is one site, one place where the elites and the vigneron are not just mingling and mixing together. They're experiencing something. I, I really wondered, what would a, a vigneron in Dijon make of these lawyers and actors dressed up as vignerons, pretending to be vignerons on stage and talking to these uh, wealthy judges and these, these other important figures. Um, so that was a kind of printed source I didn't expect, but found to be very useful. And I discovered um, that there have been uh, a couple of uh, uh, literary scholars who uh, have done a lot with them and have written about them and helped me understand uh, how those plays worked and what they were about uh, and also translated the dialect into French for me so I could actually read it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Good. <laughs> but I I have friends in Dijon who um, work with that dialect and can it, it's no longer still spoken. Uh, but um, can understand it and told me a lot more about it. But that, that's a part of uh, oral culture that if you're just reading the history of the early modern world, whether you're reading Renaissance Italy um, and you're not a specialist, you, you might not know, well, there was no national Italian language then. And, no, right. Uh, right. Speaking various regional dialects 
Um, and the, the same was true in, in 16th century Dijon. Um, now, there were some particularly rural people who may have only spoken dialect, but most also spoke French. And uh, uh, it's, it's not clear how many of the elites uh, spoke and understood the local dialect, but obviously some did. Um, but that was an aspect of that world I hadn't, I didn't really know enough to ask questions until I stumbled across these, these sources. And uh, it pulled me off in a direction that I really enjoyed doing and enjoyed learning about. And it made me understand historians need to have uh, a lot more respect for literature, not just as written sources we can draw upon to help us uh, reconfigure the past or construct it, but as a means of better understanding how that world operated, that, you know, this was oral. It wasn't just written text. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, that I think was very important for me to understand, and and what I've tried to uh, help students understand as well. Mm. I I uh, that that uh, I love that feeling of imagining you know reading plays that really aren't performed anymore, and wondering, thinking about them, thinking about the staging, how that would be, especially plays that are happening kind of on these low budget or very, you know, just out in the street, what that must look like. What's the role of the audience? Um, you know, how much ad lib is going on there? Uh, is that fascinating? And it is this whole other way to get at the questions we ask. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's very cool. It, in, in some ways, it, it's like um, Shakespeare. Um, the absolute worst way, I think, to get students interested in Shakespeare is to force them to read it in high school oh, as a text. Oh, God. Um, you know, it, it was written to be performed, not to be read from as, as a set text. And um, we know early modern audiences interacted. I mean, the, the audiences were just as important as the actors. Uh, if they don't like the play, they make their wishes known. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and... Um, you don't have any sense of that just from reading a text. Uh, no, it's it's pretty dull, actually. If you can't, I mean, I'm sure some people, they become directors of theater, I imagine, can read plays and see them. But I, I don't have that gift, and I don't think a lot of people do. Um, and yeah, the, the degree to which an early modern audience is is talking back is making noises, the laughter. You know, it's, if you see a comedy even now, you can, the, like, how much laughter as a character the audience enjoying like changes the 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 way this goes really fascinating um and difficult and we aren't trained very well in history to to deal with literature and possibly possibly i i have as an anist an historian been accused of having a bit of a superiority complex discipline wise Mm -hmm. i'll accept that that's true um yeah, and then you have a lot of archival material as well. Yeah, the people who don't go to the archives, I don't get that. They're magical moments when you open something and it's written. Someone wrote it 500 years ago, 400 years ago. Someone wrote this down and you get to read it. Mm. And you just never know what you're going to find. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. Um, 
you find things that you never even imagined could possibly have occurred, but you are <laughs> talking about it. Um, I, I include in the book um, uh, an execution of a woman who is accused of infanticide. And, uh, you know, Dijon was like most cities. They had a place of execution where they all took place and crowds gathered. Mm -hmm. um, but the executioner botched the job. Um, he injured this young woman uh, severely, uh, and the crowd uh, sort of stormed the, the executioner and were throwing stones at him. They, he wasn't fulfilling his duty, and the, no. the woman actually survived uh, and was pardoned by the king for, for her crime. Uh, and people were writing, you know, God saved her because they, they wanted, he wanted her mm -hmm. to survive. Uh, but it wasn't so good for the exit. <laughs> how can you make that up? No, right. I'm sure. Yeah. I, um, I opened a case one day. I opened a, an inquisition file and a lock of hair fell out. I was like, what is this? It was so cool. Yeah. But they are cold often. And the amount of time I've spent waiting quietly, drinking coffee, you know, um, I, I tend to uh, think about the really cool things and I forget about the mountain of wills mm. that I've gone through <laughs> word by boring word. Oh God. All right. Um, okay, so let's talk about the, the book and how you argue it. So it's laid out chronologically. Um, so uh, 1477 to 1560, part two, 1560 to 1595, and then part three takes us on to 1630. Um, so you start part one with the death of Charles the Bold, the last Valois Duke of Burgundy in 1477. And so this basically at this point, it's safe to say this longstanding desire for the Middle Kingdom is is dead and probably for good this time, right? So why did you choose here to start the book? What was useful about that for you? Um, I felt I needed to at least uh, mention the Valois Dukes because they were still uh, so visible, partly as tombs. They were dead, obviously, after 1477, but they had created uh, within the city of Dijon, the southern capital uh, of this very large, um, uncontinuous state called Burgundy. Uh, lots of territories and lands that stretched all the way uh, from sort of central Europe to the North Sea. In the capital, there was the Duke's palace. There was the Duke's uh, chapel where he worshipped. These were all very important places uh, in the city still in the 16th century, and people still talked about them, uh, but mainly because the city enjoyed rights, liberties, and privileges that had been originally granted by the Dukes of Burgundy. And one of the things that they still were very, very cognizant of in the city was that King uh, Louis of France, when they agreed to become French rather than go into the Holy Roman Empire under Maximilian I, um, was that he would recognize those provincial uh, liberties and privileges. 
And one of these privileges was the right to elect their own mayor. Um, they enjoyed other things, the right to collect their own taxes and turn over a portion of them to the French crown. Um, and there were a whole list of things that were spelled out. And the Valois Dukes had granted those initially. So uh, I, I felt like um, here was a new phase in the history of the city that started when they became French uh, and were no longer an independent state. And uh, as you, uh, being a Renaissance historian, early modern historian, would know, Burgundy was a powerful state in the 15th century uh, and uh, actually made a difference in the Hundred Years' War when they switched sides uh, from supporting um, the English to supporting the French uh, after Agincourt. So um, I started then, and also because I wanted to know a little bit more about them, but uh, so much of the political history of the city, and particularly surrounding the local elections, which I, you don't expect elections where every male head of household can vote, um, you know, would take place in the 16th century, but it wasn't uncommon. Um, there mm -hmm. were a lot of... In fact, um, late medieval uh, communities that enjoyed these rights elected their own officials. And um, because the vigneron, the, the wine workers, uh, began to participate more and more, and by the middle of the 16th century, made up a majority of those who voted, even though there were only about 20% of the city's population, um, I wanted to know more and more. And they all kept coming back to these rights granted by the Valois Dukes. So that's why I started there. All right. So uh, in the next chapter, there's I particularly enjoy your discussion uh, of the myriad methods of religious observation uh, practiced on the ground in the era leading up to the Reformations, which is a kind of an important break. And I think this makes sense, right? The death of the Valois Dukes to the the Reformation is a is a reasonable period, you know that's that's a sensible cutoff. Um, but so, uh, would you just in this kind of what impossible question? Sorry in advance. You're, I'm going to have another one in a minute too. So just be, be ready. But kind of, can you tell our listeners uh, how would you characterize the? Uh, the religious observance on the ground in this era. <laughs> well, yes. That's a yes, career. A very large question. <laughs> and one of the things that became very clear to me was that religion wasn't something that happened in church. Obviously, it did happen in church, but it wasn't limited or bounded by what went on in church. Um, clearly, lay Christians had relationships with the clergy. There were an unusually large number of clergy living in Dijon, not just parish priests, but there were a lot of religious orders uh, that had religious houses in Dijon. Uh, and so there were clergy of all kinds uh, roaming around the city, uh, at any given time. Um, but there were 
lots of events that historians would classify under the rubric of religion that was a part of their everyday life. Um, and I discovered, particularly once I got interested in the, the vineyard workers, that religious processions were almost daily events. And most of them were uh, to pray to God to protect the vines from bad weather, from hail, from insects, from all kinds of things. Uh, and uh, there was also the, the distribution of blessed bread to the poor uh, that a, a certain religious order did uh, every Sunday after church. They would gather this bread the priest had blessed. It wasn't consecrated. The laity um, you know, were denied consecrated bread from the 12th century on. Uh, uh, the chalice, sorry, uh, but the, and they only received the consecrated bread generally on Easter Sunday when they received uh, communion. But every Sunday there was blessed bread and it was distributed to the poor. Um, th there was just so much of religion that took place outside the church. Uh, I focused um, in the book particularly on uh, two areas, one that clearly took place within the church, the Eucharist, uh, receiving communion, um, but also the Virgin Mary, uh, because um, her role was, well, she's hardly mentioned at all in the Bible, I think not even a dozen times, but, yeah. and her role in the early church was, was not great at all, but by the late Middle Ages, uh, her role had become very important. Uh, and her role in the city of Dijon was especially important because everyone believed it was she who saved the city from attack by the imperial troops of the Holy Roman Emperor in the year 1533, uh -huh. when uh, an imperial army laid siege to the city of Dijon. Uh, and this was part of the Italian wars. Uh, and uh, as it happened, the city fathers, the mayor and uh, the aldermen on the city council, and the, some judges in the parliament uh, had agreed they would try to uh, um, get the leader of the imperial army to take his army away if they paid him a large sum of money, which he agreed to do. But even the, the local elites believe the Virgin Mary played a role in this in getting him to agree to it. But popular belief, it was clearly the Virgin Mary who intervened to save them on their behalf. And uh, there was a tapestry commission just a few years later after the siege, which still hangs in the local museum in Dijon, you can see it, that has the Virgin Mary in this cloud um, uh, hovering over a religious procession that went through the city in her name, led by the clergy of the parish of Notre Dame in Dijon. Mm -hmm. uh, and the very next day, the imperial army uh, left. So uh, this played a role. And pretty clear, right? That's the irrefutable. <laughs> and um, I was very interested in this. And so I wrote a bit more about those two aspects of religion, but tried to give a, a different sense of, um, you know, religion involved a lot more than just sitting in church 
listening to, for the most part, um, apart from the bidding prayers and the sermon, which were in French, listening to uh, a, a liturgy that was predominantly in Latin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was trying to to discover how they made sense of that. And again, the work of a lot of other scholars made it very clear. Um, it did make sense to them. And they did understand what they needed to understand when they were receiving the Eucharist on Easter Sunday. They, they might not understand all of the complicated theology, but they knew they were imbibing and taking the literal body of Christ inside them. And this was giving them grace and making mm-hmm. them a more Christian person. Um, and um, on the other Sundays, when the priest alone was imbibing the consecrated host, um, he displayed it to them. He held it up. And this was an important moment for them, um, that they were in the presence uh, of the living body of of Christ. and. Um, did they understand? Did they really believe transubstantiation? Um, the, we don't know, uh, but it clearly mattered to them. It was important mm-hmm. to them. Uh, and uh, that's what I tried to get across in the book. Yeah. Um, how their religion was tied into their material existence, tied into local politics, but all of that mattered to them. Um, it wasn't just a crass socioeconomic uh, class struggle with the elites. That no. and their understanding of their world was much more complicated than that. Well, and you know what does belief mean anyway? You know that's this very personal thing, but it 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 matters, and there's there's a role for everyone in that, and it is like. Religion happens outside of church and things that aren't religious happen inside of church as well. Like these, these boundaries are much more porous. Like these walls, just like your daily life and your religious practice. There's, there, there are these boundaries that we put in place that seem very natural to us that would not have seemed natural or even conceivable in the early modern area. I, I think um, just, it is an important thing to kind of understanding the period, you know, uh, and that's, that's a thing people say all the time. They're like, God, oh, did people really believe in witches? Well, what do you, what do you want? What do you guess? And like, yes, absolutely. And that isn't even problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, um, anyway. All right. So uh, the question that propels the book, and I'm just going to quote you here, what was the range of relations between the learned elites and the popular classes from the late 15th to early 17th centuries in Dijon, and how did that change over time? So in this book, wine is really uh, is a vehicle to that answer. It's a central part of that answer. And you really get into that um, at the end of the first section. Uh, so, you know, why wine? We've talked about a bit. And, and what happens here? Well, um, one of the things I discovered uh, was that I couldn't write about religion without wine, but I couldn't write about wine without religion. Um, Most of the vineyards were owned either by local parish churches, local religious orders, and most of them were founded by 
religious orders. And in Burgundy, the Cistercians played a very important role. And indeed, the, 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 the founding home of the Cistercian order in the village of Cito, uh, which is like eight kilometers outside of Dijon. Uh, and uh, the, the um, St. Bernard of Cluny, who was, um, he didn't found the Cistercian order, but he was very, played a very prominent role. He founded and bought up vineyard land in some of the most expensive vineyard real estate in the world now, outside of Dijon, going down toward Bone and south of Bone, what wine aficionados call the Cote d'Or, the golden slopes mm-hmm. uh, where this wonderful Burgundy wine uh, made from Pinot Noir, red grapes, and Chardonnay, white grapes, are grown. Uh, and some of the most famous wines today are grown in these vineyards that were originally planted by Bernard and these uh, religious. Uh, and parish churches owned a lot of vineyard land. It provided income. Um, the various religious houses in Dijon owned a lot of vineyards, provided income. And a lot of the workers uh, who lived in Dijon um, would work in these vineyards. Um, now, many of the vignerons did own some vines, uh, but most of the vineyard land uh, was owned by uh, various religious communities. Um, and what also surprised me, shocked me maybe more than anything else, was that masses for the dead, which were very common, and um, if you spend a lot of time, you said you looked at a lot of wills and notarial archives. There are a lot of um, masses for the dead uh, mm-hmm. in those same archives. And uh, I discovered that nearly every one was funded by well, what I call wine futures, but they don't work like wine futures today. Um, they were funded with promises of the income from specific parcels of vines in vineyards that they owned. And so local parish priests would promise to say a mass on the anniversary of the death of a a local Dijonais person, his family would pay for that and uh, would provide payment in perpetuity Uh, because the masses were in perpetuity. Uh, Every year on the anniversary of the death, the the parish priest would say a special mass. And these, of course, were designed to speed up the time in purgatory for the deceased. Um, uh, And as I was looking through hundreds of these one summer, uh, a friend of mine, another American working, he said, these are... In perpetuity, you mean we can, after we knock off from the archives, we can go down to the local church and hear a few? And (laughs) they're still going on? Um, And uh, I said, no, in fact, by the, they virtually stopped. The local priests stopped doing them because there were so many uh, by the time of the French Revolution. In fact, by the late 17th century, uh, they would. Um, combine uh, lots of people into one mass for the dead to say them all. But yes. um, a- as 
a reader of the book will discover, um, a lot of these vineyard workers banded together um, to have masses said in perpetuity on a certain date, not for their souls necessarily, but to protect the vines from weather um, so that the clergy wouldn't have to organize a, a special religious procession to pray to God. They would do this automatically uh, at various points in the year. And I just literally uh, discovered by accident um, several carved um, stones that the words of these and the names of the people who had funded these were chiseled into the wall of the parish church in the mm. parish of, of Saint Michel, Saint Michael Parish. Um, so again, I'm. If you spend enough time in a place, you stumble across and discover things that. Uh, turn out to be important touchstones in the book that emerged. Amazing. Um, yeah, this idea of, uh, I, uh, there's so many questions there, and we are really running out of time. Uh, we've got spent so much, this has been such a good conversation, we're not even a third of the way through the book. So I'm just going to ask a couple really big questions. So part two, we get into the wars of religion in Burgundy, um, and there's a lot, so much material I want to cover, but so I'm just going to ask you uh, very broadly, what's the position of Burgundy in the wars of religion? So can, you, well, can, can you answer that even? Is, well, yeah, yeah Burgundy uh, w- was very hostile to Protestantism. I make that clear uh, starting in the first part of the book. Um, and they had basically um, weeded out most Protestant. Dijon had a large Protestant community early on in the 1540s and 50s, uh, maybe as many as 600 people uh, out of a population of oh, approaching 10,000 early in the 16th century. Uh, so significant numbers, but not overwhelming. Uh, but they pressured them either to... Uh, abjure their faith, come back to the Roman church, or leave. And mm-hmm. uh, they began seizing their their homes and property. And so most were gone. So Burgundy, uh, as a region, uh, was pretty much a stronghold for um, initially the royalist troops of the crown and later the Catholic League that um, basically took King Henry III prisoner almost, um, and w- was fighting uh, Protestantism. And by the 1580s and uh, 1590s, um, Henry of Navarre, who was that heir next in line to the throne, who would become King Henry IV. So essentially, Burgundy was very Catholic, anti-Protestant. Um, it didn't suffer one of the massacres after the St. Bartholomew's Massacre in Paris because there were very few Protestants there in a massacre. They were harmless. They, the, the few mm-hmm. left. Um, so that was essentially the position. And um, when Henry IV abandoned his Protestant faith in 1593 uh, and reconverted uh, to Catholicism, uh, the province declared their loyalty to him. Uh, and as long as he was loyal to the Catholic Church, no longer a heretic, they were very happy uh, to accept him as their king. And 
um, a few of the staunch Catholics held out for a few more years, but um, Burgundy during the Wars of Religion um, eventually was loyal to King Henry the Fourth. Sure. Okay. Um, and so, and then the next era you cover is the one leading up to Louis the Fourteenth, the path to absolute monarchy. Kind of the accepted narrative is that the wars of religion, which are, you know, wars of religion, but they're also civil wars with implications for the strength of the crown, encouraged Henry IV and Louis XIII to do basically the, everything they could to weaken the local powers, strengthen their own, and then bring us to the absolutist, the perfect absolutist monarchy of Louis XIV. And you nuance this position. So can you just, uh, can you briefly tell us how, like, what do you do with this? Yeah, well. First of all, other scholars have nuanced what we now un- understand by the absolute monarchy of Louis XIV. Um, absolutism uh, wasn't just complete power to the king, and that was it. But um, what I try, uh, the, the narrative I try to tell in the book is that this interrelationship between the local elites and the popular classes, particularly the the vigneron, the those in the wine industry, that had they had depended on each other to help root out Protestantism. Uh, and the local elites who uh, wanted to realign with Henry IV after his conversion depended on the vigneron who supported him, um, that now they found themselves much more dependent on the crown, particularly after Henry IV died and was replaced by his son Louis XIII who began to renege on the local privileges and liberties that Henry IV had upheld and recognized, um, and um, tensions between the city, the region, and the crown only increased. And uh, as I spell out in the book, by 1630, um, Louis XIII, um, and who was now becoming his his chief minister, Cardinal Richelieu, um, wanted to take back the right of Dijon to tax its own subjects, uh, to collect their own taxes, assess their own taxes, and ultimately to elect their own mayors. The king wanted to choose the mayor of the city, and uh, the local vigneron revolted, uh, encouraged and egged on by the city council, who they were trying to hold on to their privileges as well. And uh, um, there was a popular popular uprising put down very strongly by the king who came to Dijon and admonished them uh, in person. uh, And this led to a very different relationship. So what I, the narrative I tell in the book is that you know, from 1477 to 1630 was a period when these local wine workers had much uh, a much more significant role to play in local politics and local religion uh, than they had before or afterwards. Uh, and I tried to explain how this came about and um, why it was important. Thank you so much for that. You did a great job with that. Thank you so much for taking care of that. Okay, so you are emeritus now, yes? Yes, I retired a couple of years ago. Um, Although I retired from 
teaching, I'm still writing, and I still have some uh, doctoral students that I'm shepherding through. I'm not abandoning them. Uh, and I uh, am on the committees of several doctoral students at Georgetown as well uh, that I've worked with. Uh, and um, I still give the occasional lecture, although not so much during COVID. Right. Um, yeah. I, I team taught a course on called The Global History of Christianity with uh, another colleague in religious studies and another colleague in history who does American religious history. And we taught that together right before I retired. And uh, the two of them are, are now teaching it. And I give an occasional lecture when, on the Reformation when, when they do that. Um, oh, good. But yeah, I'm, I'm retired and, uh, and enjoying it. And um, don't, don't regret it. I, I do miss the students, although I still stay in contact with a few of them via email. I, good. I I, uh, I am sorry for the students who did not get to sit in one of your classrooms, though. I mean, just this conversation has led me to believe that that would have been a dream. But I'm glad that you're still doing things and you are still researching. Yes. Yeah, I'm, um, again, doing something completely different. I'm working on a book on how lay people read their vernacular Bibles in the mm. century when they finally got Bibles in their own language that were available enough so a lot of them could read them. I'm, try I'm using surviving copies, uh, if I can identify 16th century handwriting of comments, uh, annotations, underlinings, um, and again, gotten me more into the history of the book and another whole Oh, yeah, yeah. Academic industry that uh, sure. I uh, am happy to be a part of and uh, trying to discover, well, what parts of the Bible did they comment on? Did, what, what did they make of it? And so uh, that, that's what I'm doing at the moment. Oh, that sounds really cool. That sounds like it must be really fun too. Like that, the the joy of finding you're interacting with these people, right? With their little marginalia would be so cool. Ah, brilliant. All right. Well, I have taken up away, away so much of your time, but it's been a delightful conversation. Thanks for meeting with me. Thanks for having me, Hannah, and um, I really appreciate it.